We've been going through the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 18, lesson 52. And we are today going to look at what is the foundational teaching for conflict resolution in the congregation for those who are part of Yeshua's kingdom. He's going to outline the process for any grievance you may have with your brother in the congregation. So foundational is it that we made a part of our bylaws that you have to follow this process. Sadly, it's part of our bylaws because most believers don't really understand it, nor do they live by it. And so we have to restate it within the bylaws. But let's read through it quickly again before we start to really look at it. It's uh, Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that in every matter, so every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, there's some debate on this passage because some manuscripts don't have against you in the text. It's not there. It just says, if your brother sins, go to him. The problem with that is, is it kind of places everybody as watchdogs over their brothers. You know, we're going to watch to see if he sins. And I don't think that's really what's intended here. I think that this is intended for conflict resolution within the community. If a brother in the community is in sin, I can tell you what, it won't be long before the elders get wind of it and take care of it. But if everyone, think about this, if everyone were looking at this just for sin in everyone else's life and then calling them on it, We'd have more strife in the community than we could resolve. I think for most of us, we're able to hear the Lord well enough and the Spirit of the Lord is capable of calling us on our sin. So I do believe that it is exactly as it's rendered here and it means a brother who sins against you. We're talking about a brother or a sister that offends you. And don't get me wrong, if a brother is found to be in sin within the community, the elders will still follow the same procedure. But today I want to look at it in light of conflict resolution. And I was kind of glad that I got the story of Joseph today because it fits right into this. There's, there's still a problem with this passage and it still causes oftentimes more strife than it cures. And it's because most in the church really have no understanding of this instruction. And if you read it literally and you follow it through on a literal level, taking it out of its first century context, it really is a disaster. I mean, this is the way it plays out for most. I have a problem with Steve, and I go and tell a couple of my friends. Because it says, take two or three witnesses. So I grab a couple of witnesses, and after I've thoroughly versed them on my side of the story, I take them with me to confront the individual. And the individual, Steve, of course, he feels attacked and unheard as far as his side of the story goes because I made sure my witnesses were thoroughly prejudiced before we came. And so I and my party of hangmen 
take the next step and go tell everyone in the church. And we've done our Matthew 18 process, right? Wrong. You see, the very first thing that most people do when they have a conflict is they go home and stew for a while, then they call their friends and tell them. And what is that? We all know what that is, right? With one voice, Lashon Hurrah. Oftentimes, you have both heard people doing this, and so it's not long before you have an event happen in the congregation that's almost impossible to resolve. And I mean, when you really look at this and put it back into its context, it really doesn't get any simpler than what he tells us here. This is really simple if it's properly understood. Instead of going home and stewing and making those phone calls to prejudice your witnesses, call the person and say, can we get together? I feel terrible. I want to put this behind us. You know, I love you, and I don't want anything to come between us that would prevent us from fulfilling the command of loving each other as we love ourselves. Can't we work this out? Let's, see, uh, let's look at this and see how Yeshua tells us to resolve something like this. Let's begin. But I, I mean, this is, it's no coincidence that this occurs after the verse we looked at last week. In, in verse 3 of chapter 18, it says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and humble and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We spoke of this a little bit last week, and the, and the thing I want to bring forth out of this is that it takes humility to stop on the road of life and say, Lord, I've been wrong." It takes humility to lay down your life and walk in the footsteps of Messiah. Well, let me say this. In the face of conflict, it takes the same humility to stop and take a hard look at yourself first. You see, the first thing to remember when resolving any conflict is that in any conflict, both parties are more than likely at fault somewhere. And so... If you're one of the parties, you might want to start by examining your own actions. You see, the best way to resolve conflict is if you can recognize your fault in it and begin with an apology for what you've done. And hopefully, that will bring the other person to finding his fault in the matter as well. Another thing that should help in resolving conflict is that we're saved... By the love and the mercy of God. And when, we're, and when we're saved, we have, in some measure, depending on your relationship with him, the indwelling spirit of God within you. And so, when you go to your brother, you're not just standing in front of your brother, who you're supposed to love as yourself, but because he too has the indwelling presence of God within him, you're standing before the Savior the Lord Yeshua, who do you are to love with all your heart, soul, and mind. It often amazes me when I think about human nature, and, and I'm no different. We go through life worrying about what people will think of us, and we do things sometimes in private that we would never do in public because of what people would think, when all the while, the one who sees and knows everything and the one who will one day make everything known to everyone is right there with us. We fear men 
when we should be in fear of the one who can truly bring us to our knees. So oftentimes, instead of looking at what we've done to help this conflict, bring about this conflict, and instead of repenting, we hide it, and we continue to blame the other person. Most of the problems between people that I have seen in the years of ministry are small, and they rise because neither party can humble themselves. Another thing I've noticed as one frequently called to judge matters is I've yet to hear, yet to listen to both parties of an issue and not find a problem with both parties. And we can find this in Scripture as well. We looked at it this morning. If we look at one of the worst travesties in the Bible, one of the worst instances of someone offending a brother in the Bible. It's our parashah for this week. The story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into Egypt into slavery. And the reason? Well, because he had some dreams. Whereby he spoke of his ruling over them and because he had offended them by bringing an evil report against them to their father. This guy, Joseph, was their father's favorite, and he was also a terrible tattletale. And he was so bad, think about this, because we don't get the whole story here, we just get a little bit of the picture. But he must have been so bad that they as a group hated him so bad that they were going to kill Joseph. He must have done some bad things. And it was only because of Reuben and Judah that they sell him and that he sold and taken into Egypt. Because he sold again. It's only because of Reuben and Judah that they don't put him to death. Now this would seem like an offense that would be unforgivable, wouldn't it? I mean to be sold into slavery for years and as a result be thrown into prison. I mean, what has anyone ever done to you that it would even come close to relating to that? Think about it. This, Joseph must have been a hurting guy. One moment he's daddy's favorite and the next moment he's a slave. Sold to the world, no family, no support. Nothing. And we can, I think we can see this if we read a little bit into the text here. If we go back up to chapter 42 in verse 14 it says, And Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you're spies. And this is how you will be tested as sure as Pharaoh lives. You will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. And if you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all into custody for three days. I, I got to tell you, Joseph is not a happy camper here. He's a little bit upset. And there's nothing in the text that says he's fooling around here. There's nothing in the text that doesn't say that he, in, that he just intends to leave his brothers in prison and send one person home, as he said. He puts them in prison, but then three days go by. He's thought about things, and he recants, and he says, I'll let you all go home. I'm just going to keep Simeon. Now, you can read chapter 44 later, read Judah's impassioned plea for his, his brother, 
Benjamin. And we don't have time to do that, but read that impassioned plea. And in that impassioned plea, Joseph hears Judah's sorrow over what they did, the absolute grief that they brought on their father, Jacob, and, and his repentance and his sorrow. And when Joseph hears that, we read this in chapter 45. It says this. When Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept loudly. So loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. So I want you to think about this. Joseph breaks down and he starts to weep. You have to ask yourself, why would he weep? Right? I mean... He's not the one at fault here. He's got nothing to cry about, right? And he weeps, I believe, for two reasons. First, because he heard the sorrow of Judah. But I think the second reason he weeps is he has remorse over what he did. I also think that the time that has passed, he's had time to think and he remembers how he treated his brothers and that he too had some fault in all of this. Something we don't think about too much. But the brothers must have been so hurt that before they sell Joseph that they were going to kill him. Think about how he must have hurt his brothers terribly enough that the whole lot of them, not just one of them, the whole bunch of them wanted to get rid of him, wanted to put him to death. Think about it. If we look back to chapter 42 again in verse 9, he says something that's a little bit revealing and, and kind of, I think, shows what I'm saying. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Do you think that Joseph remembers also that he was unkind to his brothers? That it was in part his unkindness that drove his brothers to the extreme measure? Well, I think he did. And more than anything, that's what brought him to tears. Because it's what brings me to tears when I think about the things that I've done in the past. And I bring this up because even if we look at the greatest travesty in the whole of the Torah, Joseph was still in some way at fault. And he ends up weeping and showing his sorrow as well. You see, I think the Lord reminded him of his fault, his unkindness. As wise, of, as wise as Joseph was, he must have thought as he plotted his revenge, you know, it was a terrible thing they did. But then God, tugging at his heart, reminded him of the terrible things he did, and he wept. Folks, in any conflict, trust me, both parties are at fault. And if we can, like Joseph and Judah, look at our fault, see our fault, Peace and restoration are right around the corner. Not far off. But, you know, let's say we've done all of that. And let's say something goes wrong and you are still unable to resolve this thing. And I want you to notice that it says, go to him privately, which means you should keep the matter between the two of you. But let's say you, you've done all you can do and you, it's still, you can't resolve it, the first step in any 
uh, is trying to resolve it between the two of you. But if that is impossible and you've humbled yourself and if you've gotten in touch with your wrong in the matter and apologized for, what, for that and there's still no resolve and you still feel you want to pursue the matter, there's no peace between the two of you, you take two witnesses with you. And this isn't just found here. It's found in the Torah as well, as you might expect. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. And we can also find it in chapter 19 and verse 15. It says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he commits at the mouth of two witnesses or in the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. And so we find the same thing in the Torah. As you might expect, Yeshua follows the Torah. And I love the way these instructions occur here. Where do they occur? In the book of Deuteronomy where God is giving Israel their final instructions on how to live at peace and harmony in the land. And he tells them how to seek justice in any matter. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be established. We can even see it in the way Yeshua sends out his disciples in twos. So that everywhere they went, there'd be two witnesses that he rose from the dead and zero witnesses that he didn't. No one to dispute it. Well, in the same way, if you have a dispute, take two witnesses with to the fact. Take two witnesses that they can see that you've humbled yourself, tried to resolve the conflict, but have not been able to do so. But let's talk about the witnesses. The last thing you want to do is take two people who are well-versed in either side of the story. You want to take two people who are completely impartial, haven't heard your side or the other person's side. Because if they have, then they're no longer witnesses. They're hangmen. If they're well in your side, you're, they've been prejudiced. And if this goes any farther, if it goes to the next step, and you come to me, you don't have any witnesses as far as I'm concerned. Not if you prejudiced them before you, you went to the person. But really, this is easy, right? But let's go to the next step. Let's say you're unable to resolve the matter. You've gone to him. You've humbled yourself. You've taken impartial witnesses with you to see that this person is immovable. In the matter, what do you do next? And this is where it gets a little sticky. It said, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And here's where it gets confusing. We get this word church again. The word that's used here shouldn't have been translated church. It should have been translated assembly. It's the word Greek word ekklesia. I put it up here again. We're not going to go into a big spiel on it because we've, we've talked about the inconsistency of this translation before. It's a word that means assembly. And what assembly do you suppose he means? Well, let me tell you that if you had a conflict anciently, you didn't run over to the temple or to the synagogue and shout out, Steve has offended me! Hey, everyone, Steve has offended me, and I have two witnesses to prove it. And while the, while the, the witnesses are on the other side of the temple mount saying, Hey, Steve offended Stan, we're the witnesses. Let's take him out and treat him like a Gentile, a tax collector. No, if you had a dispute that could not be resolved, you'd go to the assembly. But what assembly would you go to? The assembly of elders, judges. And they would decide the matter. And then their decision would be binding. 
And just as you would want to keep it private between you and the person, and then the two witnesses keeping it private as well, so too you would want to just take it to the judges alone, keep the number of people as small as possible, because you might get it resolved. And why bring embarrassment to anybody? Why broadcast it? The assembly that they're speaking of would be called a beten, a house of judgment. Every synagogue and community had a court in the first century. They had a beting. There were also larger courts of 23 judges and then the, the real large court of 71 in the Sanhedrin. Listen to what the Jewish Encyclopedia says. In larger communities, however, there is a bet din consisting of at least three members which sits daily except on the Sabbath and holidays and decides ritual as well as legal questions. The local rabbi generally presides. We can even see an example of a, a bet din if we look in the book of Acts chapter 15. There's an assembly of elders to meet and decide between Shaul and the members of the circumcision group. And they decide in favor of Shaul and the non-Jews. And that bet din was binding on the entire Kehillah. Their decision was binding on the entire Kehillah. We can look at Shaul's letter to the Corinthians and see how important it was to the community of believers as he rebukes them for not even having one. Listen to what he says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint judges even men of little account in the assembly. Shaul says, hey, form a Beitin. Even if it's men of little account, they'd be better judges than the judges that you'd see in the world. And of course, his comment to appoint men of little account is a bit facetious. But what he's saying is it's important because it goes back to the first step of the Matthew 18 process, the next thing he says. Listen to this. In verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another. This in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. Listen, he says it would be better for you to be wronged than to seek out a court. Even if, even if it was an assembly of the Beit Din, you've already, if you go to court, you're already defeated, right? In other words, humble yourself. Prefer your brother in all things. I can tell you this, over the years, I have apologized for things that I did not do. I've humbled myself, and I've apologized for things that I never did, just for the sake of peace. Humble yourself, seek peace. I'll tell you what, you'll live longer and happier. You'll have less stress in your life, and you'll live in victory, not defeat. 
So Shaul agrees with me. If it, but if it should go to a bait den, then listen. They'll probably decide the matter, and the decision will more than likely be a humble compromise that you should have sought from the beginning. Seldom do you side for one side or the other, but you always consider everything, and it usually winds up smack dab in the middle someplace. Now, let's say that wasn't good enough for one party, and they still won't make peace. What does he say in verse 17? If he refuses to listen to even to the assembly, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And again, this takes a little understanding of first century thought, but if he has contempt for the court, for the Bedin, for the leaders of the community, the elders of the community, then the matter should be made public in that the person is removed from fellowship where it says treat him like a pagan, we could say a Gentile. It means as one outside of the community. Treat him like one that isn't part of the community. And it means there's no higher authority within the community. There's no other recourse for him. So put him outside of the community. The you in the passage means the assembly. And then so we as the assembly should treat him like an outsider. Not part of the community. Sadly, that seldom happens. Because of that, few people are really made to face any of their problems in life. All they have to do is say, I'm going over here to another assembly. And then they get welcomed over there with open arms. They never have to deal with any of their problems. And eventually then they make trouble there and then they run to the next place. If you're really unlucky, they'll run back to you. But let me say this, if they were ostracized, think of this, if, we, if the person was really ostracized by the whole Messianic community, is if we as Messianic communities were more unified, we would see less trouble in our communities. Because people would be more apt to repent, to look at themselves and say, I'm wrong, to look at themselves and be healed. The fact is, I think that we as leaders of the congregations need to get together. Congregations in town need to get together. And when someone leaves here in bad terms, let me just tell you the story. So that everybody knows. So that they don't straddle themselves with the same problem. Amen? Can I get an amen out of that? If we were all to ostracize people, it would leave them no recourse but to repent. But the way things are now, they just go to another congregation. I'm not going to deal with this. You guys are all wrong, even the judges. I'm going over here. Where it says tax collector. The tax collector, and think about this, the tax collectors are infamous for their dishonesty. It was they who decided the value, say, of the catch of fish, a catch of fish. And they always attached a higher value than they were expected to give to the, to the authorities, and so they kept a good sum for themselves. And so they were dishonest in their evaluations and their taxes. And when it says treat him like a tax collector, it simply means don't trust him. He's shown himself not to be trustworthy. Don't trust him. Treat him like an outsider. 
He, if, if he's, he's dishonest with himself, and he's dishonest with others. Shaul gives the same advice in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. It says, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Within any community, there must be order and judgment or there will be those who take advantage of the disorder. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them also. You see what he says here? He says, listen, he closes the discourse by teaching that there is no higher authority than that that was in the community. What the judges decided will be final. There's no recourse, not even in heaven, so don't bother praying about it. I like to think of it like this. It's like daddy saying, if you've been found wrong by everyone in the community, then don't come crying to me. Because I'm not going to listen. It's saying that if you've gone through this process and you haven't made peace and the judges decided against you, don't bother praying about it because you have no recourse in heaven either. And one day when you stand before the king, the verdict will be the same. Amen?